Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello and welcome to the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Chris Arnold with National Public Radio. We have a great panel today and we're going to be starting the panel soon. I'm also gonna tell you that the Huffington Post is streaming today's event, so thank you to them. Our panel is a group of academics, researchers, and policy experts who will discuss the burgeoning numbers of people living and working longer and the implications for society. This program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. I promise I won't read everything, but I need to get that right. The forum at hsph.harvard.edu. If you have questions, you can also participate in a live chat session that's happening on the forum right now. So first, we're going to turn to Lisa Berkman, who is the professor of public policy and of epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School and the director of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies. You've been looking at a lot of these issues. Um, what are you finding? So overall, by far the most important thing is that societies are undergoing a demographic transition that the world has never seen. It's never been before in human history that we have aging societies. And by aging societies, we mean societies in which there are more people over 60 than there are under five. And globally, in the next decade, the world will be a globally aging world. And the United States is about right in the middle of these demographic transitions. So there's some countries ahead of us, countries like Japan, we know. Um, Italy, Germany, France are ahead of us in this demographic transitions. And there's many, there are many countries just behind us, but not too far behind us. If we look at demographic transitions in China, India, South Africa, a whole set of low and middle income countries that are booming. And the, con the causes of these um, transitions are very easy. They're twofold. One is life expectancy has increased over time for many, many people, so people are living longer. But more importantly, in terms of this demographic transition, it happens because fertility is declining. So you can think of China as the perfect example where a one-child policy, and now somewhat expanded, along with human, um, human um, increases in life expectancy, completely transform the society. So this kind of transformation makes every institution that we have challenged to rethink what it needs to do to adapt to a society that's fundamentally different than one we know about. Right, I mean, this has implications in, in housing, which I've covered Everything. a lot. There's implications in the workplace. There's obviously economic implications. Yep. I mean, you need more money if you're living longer. So there's almost no part of our lives day to day that is not gonna be affected by this. Right, that is absolutely true. And perhaps one of the most interesting ones is around work. So we used to think people would retire at 65 or 62, or if you were in Europe, you were gonna retire at 55. And now we're looking at three more decades of life expectancy. If we take as a, 
a center point Social Security. When Social Security was started, people could expect to live a year or two after Social Security, after they received Social Security. And for people who were disadvantaged, for instance, African Americans, never reached the age at which to get Social Security. So they paid in without ever receiving the benefits. Today we have a society in which average life expectancy, once you're an adult, is about another 19 years and longer for women. So how we think about how we're going to transform work is terribly important. And I'll just make one more point and then we can start talking about all the policy options, is that there won't be one solution. There will not be one solution to this. Some people, like many of us in this room, will continue to work and work into well, well into old age with lots of opportunities. And other people will have a great deal of disability. They're in jobs that are very um, tough and physically demanding. In French, the word for these words is pénible, which is painful. So you have to have options for people that are multiple and allow people to maximize their capacities without being able to um, be overwhelmed by the need to work longer. One thing you were saying that's interesting too is, is people working longer, are those people taking work away from younger people? Younger people are, are having trouble getting into the workforce if people are working longer. Is that a problem? Is it not a problem? Right. This is a huge um, myth. It's called lump of labor with the idea that there's a fixed number of jobs and if people stay in the labor force too long, they're going to take it away from other people. Older people take jobs from younger people. Women take jobs from men. Migrants take jobs from non-migrants. In fact, it's a complete myth. And what people have discovered as they've gone on is that this lump of labor fallacy um, is not true because, in fact, people in the workforce create jobs for other people. So we all flourish in a society where everybody works. Okay, and I believe now we're going to see a clip for uh, the next few moments. We're going to take a look at it. It's from the multimedia project called Over 50 and Out of Work from Tree of Life Productions. Uh, this features Stephen Murphy, who, after working in sales in the printing industry, found himself out of work at age 57 and struggling to get a new job. I have the background, I have the understanding. I know I'm PC proficient, you know, anything, you know, I, I don't just go to any job. I go to a job I feel would be a fit for the company, a fit for me. Basically what happens, and this is happening over and over again, is they said, okay, now we're gonna, uh, the next level, and he'll be like a regional manager or something like that. The guy will come out, I've passed all these tests, passed all these phone interviews, and he'll walk out, face drops, and then he brings me in, and I have a five-minute interview. Well, they just told me how great I was in the, uh, in the phone interviews. He's saying, basically, uh, you're too old. I don't see a real lot being said anywhere about um, how deep this age discrimination goes. And it, it, there's no question because I, I'm not just talking about me. I'm, I'm seeing other people who have these fantastic credentials and, and years of experience, and they can't get to square one. We're going to hear next from Deborah Whitman, who is the head policy person at the AARP, which has many, many million members. It, I, I'm reading here 37 million members. So what are you hearing from some of those members about these issues? Um, thanks for having me, and sorry I wasn't there in Boston, although it sounds like it's a little hard to get into the city today. Um, we, 
I think we're hearing from the vast majority of our members um, that they want to work until they're in their 60s or some even their 70s, and most expect that they'll have to. Um, and we see that in the data. We've seen a change in trends from people retiring earlier and younger, um, both in this country, as Lisa mentioned, and um, in many others. And um, this is really good news for the most part. Most people um, find that they're having um, more cognitive engagement and better health if they stay in the labor market. I know some of the experts will go into detail about that. Um, it's good for our economy. Um, older workers, the baby boomers, are some of the most educated and experienced workers we've ever had in human history. Um, and their experience and contributions can add a lot. Um, as employees, they have less turnover, um, higher levels of engagement. And um, for public programs, it's also good things where you see people contributing um, their tax revenue from their employment and not taking uh, money out in public programs. Um, but it's, uh, why are they doing that? They're mostly doing it because they need to. Uh, as much as many people want to work and stay engaged, we also see and hear from our members that um, that three-legged stool that they thought they would have in retirement of Social Security, a pension, and a, a pool of retirement savings just isn't enough. Um, and so for many, uh, the third leg of the stool isn't a pension, it is a paycheck, and they're continuing to work. Um, we're also seeing that um, that people are healthier, um, that women who have entered the labor force later in life um, need to continue so that they have built up retirement savings. So for all of these reasons, we're seeing this change in uh, the transition to what retirement is and when people retirement. Um, but I think Lisa spoke really well, as did uh, Mr. Murphy. It's the picture's not all rosy for everyone. Um, many, about half, have some kind of a physical disability in older ages um, or have a, something that keeps them from being able to fully engage in the labor market. Um, and if, if an older worker loses their job, and uh, Mr. Murphy talked about that extensively, it is really hard to find a new one. Um, the periods of unemployment are longer, and once they're out, it's, it's even harder um, to get a new job. So for all these reasons, I, I think we need to sort of think differently about our society and about what work is, um, about when we work, about how we embrace um, a variety of people within a job market um, where employers can see the benefits like the intern that just came out of having, you know, young people who have less experience as well as old people who do. And we're going to turn next to Christina Matt's Costa. And Christina, you conduct research at the Center on Aging and Work at Boston College looking at productive aging. Can you tell us what that means, productive aging? Sure. So uh, the idea behind productive aging is that it puts forth this fundamental view that the capacity of older adults needs to be uh, developed and utilized in activities that have an economic contribution. And so we're talking about uh, activities that produce goods and services in some way, whether paid or unpaid. So it opens up the possibility that uh, engagement could include not only paid employment and self-employment, but also volunteer opportunities, formal volunteer opportunities, informal volunteer opportunities, and perhaps even caregiving 
caregiving for elders, caregiving for uh, adults with disabilities, uh, children, and perhaps career-related education. So we think about education that um, <clears throat> uh, allows people to get into employment or uh, volunteer opportunities. And so um, this kind of opens up that uh, conversation to consider these other forms of, uh, of work that are essentially undervalued, but that uh, a lot of older adults tend to participate in. Um, the, this takes a, a, a social development kind of approach to dealing with the challenges of an aging population. Um, and also we know that historically, um, older adults have kind of been pushed out of or discouraged from um, being involved in these types of activities. So it's important to um, promote them, develop supports around um, their continued engagement in these types of activities. Um, we, the, the research tells us that at the individual level, um, continued engagement in productive activities um, is related to health. Um, so uh, functional well-being, cognitive well-being, um, it can reduce social isolation, it can um, uh, increase quality of life and overall well-being, um, it can help to mitigate age-related, the, the negative impact of age-related loss, um, so widowhood, for example, on, on loneliness. Um, <clears throat> and then at the community level, it can have powerful impacts on um, the ability of older adults to age in place. Um, the uh, community initiatives um, could be enhanced by engaging the talents of older adults, right? And this is a, co a cost-effective approach to um, improving co communities, perhaps. Um, and also, it's a social justice issue. To what extent should all older adults uh, or all individuals, regardless of age, be able to be involved and participate in all levels of the economy, right? And I, I've always thought about this. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity there for people to have exciting, interesting, engaging things going on. I mean, if you think of life as four quarters, like a basketball game or something, right. the fourth quarter is the most important quarter. And, you know, often retirement's thought of like, okay, well, we're shipping people off to pasture or something. Um, it sounds like you're saying, look, okay, well, let's have more creative interfaces with the workplace. So maybe you could work half time or other mm -hmm. types of jobs or, or do, do something that you've always wanted to do, um, <coughs> you know, that, that this could be done right, uh, some of the best years of people's lives, right? Uh, absolutely. And uh, you raise an important point that is a focus of my research, which is on um, designing quality roles. So it's not, is, it, is it just getting involved in anything? Right, the, there's this busy ethic associated with retirement that just staying busy is what you need to do and to age healthily, right? Um, but what we found is that it's really not just staying busy in any of these activities, but really looking at the subjective experience of your involvement in these activities. So in a study that we did, we looked at uh, people who are volunteering and working. And we found that those who were highly engaged, who were psychologically invested in what they were doing, felt a sense of meaning and connection to what they were doing, um, had higher psychological well-being than those who weren't involved in those roles at all, which is what you might expect. Um, but we found also that those who were low in engagement, who were just kind of showing up, they weren't necessarily uh, connected on a, psychologically to these roles. Um, they were just kind of doing them maybe because they had to or um, they weren't that engaging. 
these folks actually had lower psychological well-being compared to those who weren't involved in these roles at all. So it suggests that thinking about the quality of roles, what types of opportunities are available, um, is an important aspect of this conversation. And we're going to turn next to Francine Grodstein, who is a professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's. And uh, what what parts of all this are are, are you focusing on? So um, we could kind of think of me as like the little red caboose that pushes everybody up that hill. Um, you know, in order to age um, and maintain a presence in the workforce, whether it's you know the a formal professional workplace environment or a volunteer environment or whatever other activities people enjoy engaging in as they get older. Um, your health and well-being is going to be a critical aspect um, of being able to do those things. Um, and you know our ability to maintain our health, um, the work that my group does focuses especially on our memory. Um, and I think that's something we all really think about a lot as we get older and are concerned about. Um, and our, our ability to maintain um, an active, engaged life and work as we get older is you know, quite dependent our, on our memory. Um, and there are things we really need to start thinking about at much younger ages. Um, many of the aspects of our lifestyle that you know, people are constantly telling us to do um, are important for maintaining your memory as we get older too. Um, so messages such as having a healthy diet um, in midlife, in older life, um, I mean there really is, it's never too early to start and it's never too late to start. Um, and what, what sort of range of activities, I was reading it's somewhere that, that the top neurosurgeon at one of the hospitals here plays basketball three times a week. So everything comes back to basketball with me for some reason. <laughs> but, um, and that he said, this is the thing that's going to keep me, you know, from being, keep me sharp and engaged till I'm 95 years old. I mean, is that true? You know, what, what range of activities eat well? Is it also do things that are not what you do every day at a desk, you know, uh, to challenge your mind and, you know, other ways? Or, yeah. I mean, there really is a whole variety, which is good because everyone can find something they like. So in terms of exercise, um, we really find that a broad range of physical activity types um, can help you maintain your memory over time, um, even something as basic as a brisk walk. So, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, at age 50 or 60 or 70, you need to go out and run a marathon. Um, a brisk walk most days of the week, we have found, does help people to maintain their memory as they get older. Um, so it can be quite simple. Um, in addition, most of the sort of dietary components that you do hear about throughout your life, um, a diet with lots of fruit and vegetables, whole grains, um, minimizing the amount of red meat and increasing instead fish intake. Those things will help your memory as well as the other parts of your body um, and your other body systems. Um, something else we, we have begun to do research on that to me is um, the most important to think about. So initially we started out just looking at people's memories and how your lifestyle can influence um, your ability to maintain your memory. And more recently we've been expanding that to really consider overall health and well-being. 
Um, so on the study that I work on, we have identified a subset of participants who have survived past age 70, so they're living to older ages, but simultaneously have no major illnesses, have good physical function, so they're able to get around, do their own food shopping, take care of themselves. They also have good memory, and they also have good mental health. So we've identified a subset of participants who have been able to maintain all of those things. And certainly those are all critical components of being in the workforce or being a volunteer um, and being able to do those things well. And um, one of the most key predictors of that sort of overall healthy aging um, is weight. So we find that people um, who can maintain a healthy weight and not become obese are actually 80% um, um, more likely to be healthy as they get older. And, and truly, health in that big term, um, health and well-being and memory and function. Um, so that message we do also hear all the time um, about a healthy weight, trying not to gain too much weight as we age, um, which is something many of us do, is really critically important in thinking about um, wellness as we get older. So 10 pounds is probably not a huge problem, but um, <laughs> beyond that is... is Five. So I'll, 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 <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll work on that. So um, this is a good segue to our next uh, portion, which is on solutions. And let's start with economics, because uh, I think having a healthy, happy life is hard if you're totally broke uh, in retirement, which uh, we have a crisis here in America outside of Social Security. Uh, I was just giving a talk yesterday. Uh, Janet Yellen spoke not too long ago at the Boston Fed and talked about how basically half of American families with children have almost no assets whatsoever. You know, And at that stage in your life, if you have almost nothing saved, you know, you're starting from a hard place. And as we go forward, people are just not, the vast majority of Americans are not ready for retirement. So. Um, what can we do? Uh, one interesting thing that I saw was just over in the UK this past summer, and I did a story about a very interesting policy that they're enacting there, um, where every single worker in the United Kingdom is being automatically enrolled in a 401k style retirement savings plan. So, I mean, the behavioral economics of this is, yeah, people want to save, we want to do it, but we're just very bad at starting. And then we make bad choices once we actually do start. So what they're doing in the UK is they're saying, look, uh, every employer has to automatically enroll you and you're going to be defaulted into a really smart, well-allocated, low-fee mix of stuff that's going to grow well over time. Um, they're finding 91% of people, people can opt out because it's not like, you know, they're not manacling people, but 91% uh, of people stick with it. And this is something we're not, our country is not too dissimilar from uh, the United Kingdom. So I thought this was super interesting. We've got a clip uh, and a slideshow here we're going to play to uh, hear a little bit more about it. At an outdoor market in London, 30-year-old Garfield Bloomfield is selling vegetables. And he smiles at me like I'm making a joke when I ask him if he's saving for retirement yet. I'm not really saving for the future. I would like to save for the future, obviously, but at the moment, 
I'm just working to get by, really. Psychologists and behavioral economists say that there are all kinds of reasons that people don't start saving for retirement until it's too late. And some of them are very good reasons. My wife is not working at the moment because she decided to go back into studies. So I'm not really saving towards the future. Because you're just not making enough to have any not extra? Not making enough. And I've got kids to take care of, so it's like, yeah. Of course, in the U.S., wages have been stagnant. A lot of people here, too, feel like they're just scraping by. But here's the thing. If you take someone like Bloomfield and enroll him automatically in a retirement savings plan, that is, he doesn't do anything at all, but money starts coming out of his paycheck, the odds are that he'll keep saving even though right now he thinks he can't afford it. And because of the new law, Bloomfield's employer soon will have to do just that. Charlotte Clark is the top government official for retirement savings in the UK. She met me at the market here and explained that over the past year or so, a lot of workers have already been enrolled. We've still got another couple of years to roll out to all employers, so we've still got some way to go. But we've got five million people saving. And this is a kind of amazing thing, right, that, that people can opt out if they want. They could say, no, 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 give me all my money. Thank you very much. But when you sign people up, you've been finding that they actually stick with it. Yeah, we're, we're seeing over 90% of people sticking with it. So that's nine out of 10 people are deciding that this is the right thing for them. Deborah, let's let's start with you. Uh, our Congress has not been known in recent years for doing bold uh, things. But uh, what, what do you think about this as a as a policy concept? Is this something that's being talked about? Um, I love it. Um, we need to do everything we can to help people because we know if we just leave it up to people, the odds are they're never going to get enough or sign up themselves. Um, right now, we have about half the population who work for employers that don't offer the ability to save through your paycheck. Um, we also have about half the population that gets no incentive to save through the tax system. And so when we look at people getting close to retirement age, we see about half of them not having anything at all saved for their future. We have to make it easy for people. Um, I think what you heard on your clip was that they auto-enrolled. Um, but we can auto-escalate over time so people are contributing a little bit more each paycheck. Um, we can auto-rollover if you switch jobs. And while the U.S. Congress isn't doing anything at the federal level, we are seeing a number of states, California, Oregon, Illinois, for example, that have passed legislation so that if you don't work for an employer who saves, the state will help pool those and drive down costs. Other states like Washington and New Jersey are looking at a marketplace bottle. Um, but we have to do more to help people make it easy to put just a little bit aside each paycheck. And so this sounds like something that, that could work. I, I, uh, are, are there things that don't work? Are there, are there things we, we shouldn't be doing? Uh, I, I think, again, all the auto features are generally good, but what you're automatically enrolling people in has to be smart. Um, so you need to enroll them into funds that have low fees, for example, so it doesn't eat away at their principal. Um, you need to look at after leakage, so that when people change jobs, they don't take everything they've saved um, out of the workplace. Um, and we also, I think, need to not just leave it up to the individual to figure out how to manage their money when they retire. I think we spend a lot of time thinking about helping people save, 
and very little time helping people think about how to manage their money so that it lasts as long as they do. And And I don't think any country has got that last part right. Yeah, and, and that's very tricky and very important. I mean, we're doing a series on NPR called Your Money and Your Life, where, I mean, many, many, many Americans would have twice as much money when they retire if they weren't paying such high fees, uh, for example, to yeah. their investment advisors, to their mutual funds. And as asking the average American to try to navigate this you know, sea of marketing noise that, that it, uh, gets beamed at all of us all the time is challenging. Uh, as in the UK, what they've done is set up this default system that's kind of pre-screened and super smart and a great way to invest. You know, uh, here we don't we don't have something like that right now. Um, so even go ahead. I'm sorry. Even in the, the the money that you put your your savings into that you could be auto enrolled in often into a target date funds, um, really looking at how those assets are chosen so that the funds that are in the pool don't don't have high fees is really, really crucial. So there's there's a lot of hidden ways for people to take your money um, that ends up eating away at everything you're doing to sort of put it aside. You know, this might, I don't know if you want to take a moment to talk about the fiduciary rule that the Labor Department's working on to try to make this better. This is to um, to require employers and financial advisors in employer-sponsored retirement plans to be fiduciaries, to act in the client's, in the worker's best interest, right? We think this is so important, Um, as important as disclosure of fees, is that the person managing your money should be doing it based on what's good for you, not necessarily what's good for them. Um, And the Department of Labor is about to to finalize their rules. We think that this will have a huge implication on people's long-term retirement savings by keeping more money in their accounts and more uh, wise investments that they're advised to take. Yeah, I think this is something we're reporting on at NPR. It sounds super boring, the fiduciary standard for retirement, but it's it's very important. Um, okay, so uh, now we're going to talk with Lisa and Tina about part-time leaves of absence, flexible schedules, and, and the importance of that. Sure. Um, okay. So one of the major goals, if you consider you want to have people in the workforce longer, um, and they're going to age and have some kind of either disability themselves or they're likely to be in family situations, not only with young children, but with their partners or their parents, then rethinking work in terms of how it's organized becomes really central. And policies that enable people throughout the life course to work part-time, to have schedule control, um, to have leave, whether it's sick leave for themselves or others, will be a cornerstone of any sorts of future policies. And part of the issue will always be that rather than asking individuals, um, workers, where putting them in a situation where they have to ask permission, rather what we need is a set of policies that show that workplaces can reorganize and become adaptive to a new workforce. So that we're thinking about workplace policies, not individuals coming and saying, really, I need a leave. Can we make a special circumstance? But making that really apparent and having that be um, something that occurs throughout their lifetime. So right now, we think mostly about family leave for people with young children. But you know, in the future, that's going to be like one little slice of what concerns people about family leave. Family leave could be about any number of family members. And thinking about it more broadly will be 
crucial, I think, in the coming decade. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and at the, the Center on Aging and Work, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of workplace flexibility and what it means for older workers in particular. Um, and we see it as having some you know, choice and control over when, where, or how uh, one works, right? And so it can mean a lot of different things. Um, <clears throat> and the extent to which employers are really employ, you know, uh, offering these uh, flexible work options varies a lot by industry sector, um, by employer size. So larger employers tend to uh, offer these types of policies more universally, and small, um, smaller employers may offer them, but they're more uh, this one-off kind of um, situation oftentimes. Um, <clears throat> but we know that across all industry sectors, um, One-third of employers um, felt that they had established <laughs> options for employees to work in a flexible manner to a moderate or great extent. So we've got a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, workplace flexibility uh, being offered on a large scale. Um, and we know that most older workers uh, prefer some kind of um, non-standard type of setup. So they don't uh, want to work the nine to five, five day a week type of, of schedule. And that they, um, one study by Merrill Lynch found that only 6% wanted to actually work full time of baby boomers. 42% um, they said they wanted to cycle in and out of work. 16% said they wanted to work part-time, 13% said they wanted to start their own business. So there's lots of you know, variety in terms of the types of alternative um, work arrangements that older adults are looking for. And Fran and Deborah, let's talk about uh, making work workplaces healthier places like we're talking about uh, so that we do live longer, healthier lives. I understand Google just moved some parking lots so people have to walk farther to get to the, I'm not sure if that's you know gonna solve all of the employees' uh, exercise problems, but you know, um, what could my employer do to help me lose my five pounds? I mean, what, what, are, what are things that, that would be good? Yeah, so I mean, I do think, you know, helping people stay healthy um, in terms of their diet, in terms of physical activity is probably, you know, one of the major challenges of our age. Um, and, and we do know that there are lots of ways to keep people healthy and that, that <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, both workplace as well as broader policies can um, make a big difference. Um, a lot has not been done in this country. Um, and if we think, you know, there are wonderful examples like cigarette smoking. Um, you know, people say all the time, oh, people won't eat healthy, people won't exercise, there's nothing we can do. But cigarette smoking is an addictive behavior and, you know, local, state, you know, policy has made a huge difference in bringing down cigarette smoking in this country. Um, and we really need to do similar things for diet for exercise to encourage people to, you know, do those things um, and maintain it as well. Yeah, I wonder too, many workplaces have a little gym somewhere, but is there some, you know, I don't think employees still feel guilty sort of sneaking off to the gym that, you know, employers, I imagine you would say, should encourage that, have plans, have office contests, you know, who can run a hundred miles this month or something, you know, no, like to get exactly. people engaged. And actually right? there is a contest 
contest just like that at the School of Public Health. It's a, uh -huh. a stair climbing contest. All right. Um, because, you know, for example, if you look in many buildings, you know, in, in the workplace and outside of the workplace, you know, the stairs are hidden in some corner, are dark and scary. Mm -hmm. um, so even something simple as making staircases in buildings, you know, more more tempting to enter and having contests so the people have, you know, at least some temporary motivation to use stairs and really incorporate activity into every part of their life. Um, many cities have started doing things like increasing bicycle lanes um, so that it's easier pe for people to bicycle to work, for example. Um, getting people to incorporate healthy activities into their daily life certainly is a very good way of trying to improve our health. Okay, and now we're going to talk about volunteer opportunities and um, you know, there's lots of different ways uh, this could help, obviously. I mean, we hear all the time about how public schools and cities or, you know, 30 kids to a teacher. And, you know, it's also, though, difficult to bring people in who aren't educators. How do you balance uh, volunteering with, with finding things that people can actually, you know, add value and help and feel useful? Uh, who, whoever wants to answer that can go first. Yeah. Well, let me start, but I think maybe Deborah um, can finish it. A lot of our work has focused on social engagement and the health value of volunteering. So it's pretty clear that not being isolated and being socially engaged in meaningful activities um, is good for your health through a number, a number of mechanisms, both behavioral ones as well as just stress-reducing ones. So volunteering is, is a very important component. I think in some ways it's, um, it's something that we shouldn't say volunteering or work because work may end up being important for a lot of different reasons, including, as we said, the financial ones, which are not trivial, even though they both share this social engagement um, pathway. So volunteering can be very important, and there are some wonderful studies out there illustrating it, but maybe Deborah should jump in here, or... Yeah, go ahead. Or I'll, or I'll keep going, but yeah. go ahead. <laughs> sure, I, I, I think you're right. I think. Being engaged as you age, whether it's for pay or not, um, can have all kinds of health benefits um, and benefits to the health of the society and the individual. So ARP um, runs a program called Experience Corps through ARP's foundation. Um, and this engages people over 50 to go into a classroom of third graders. They're given lots of training uh, and they help them learn to read. And not only do the reading scores of the students um, go up significantly, but it's been well-researched and documented. It actually helps um, with cognitive decline. It helps physically because many of the older adults live in the community and walk to the schools. Uh, it gives them a sense of purpose. Um, all of these things, you know, it's kind of a win-win type of a program uh, because we know if kids don't read by the time they get in fourth grade, they're often not going to graduate for high school. So thinking of ways to engage people socially um, in ways that help society, we're going to have all these, um, you know, the largest generation of, of retirees in, in the history. And how can we think of ways to make it worth their while, find them opportunities to give back to society um, is something that ARP has been really, really committed to do. And this Experience Corps is, is one of our, our crown jewels of, of the work that we do. And we're about to go to some questions. I, I, I also want to get in a question from the Huffington Post. Are, are there some really good examples 
where this is working, cities around the U.S. or around the world, where we're seeing just what you're talking about uh, work really well? Um, absolutely. And one of the things that ARP also engages with is the World Health Organization's Age-Friendly City Program. Um, and this gets local mayors and city councils to commit to looking at how they provide health care, transportation, housing, um, socially engage um, their um, older residents. And we have right now 75 U.S. cities, everything from Boston, where you're sitting right now, um, to San Antonio, Texas, Oregon, New York, um, but small communities like Macon, Bibb, Georgia, that have all committed to thinking about you know, how do we put more sidewalks in, in areas to get older people and younger people to walk more? How do we um, design our transportation systems to help make it easy for people to get to healthcare when they need it? Um, I think this, this movement is really gonna transform our country um, and also help make it an easier place to grow old, not just an isolated place. Okay, great, and we're gonna turn to Lisa now, who's got some questions from online too, I believe, or? Great, thank you. We've, we do have a lot of questions online, so I think we're just going to stick to taking those today if we can. Okay. Um, we've had a lot of questions coming in about discrimination, age discrimination, which we started with our clip about, <coughs> so I'll share one of those. Older workers are struggling to squeeze a few more years of employment out of their work lives to have some semblance of retirement, yet they constantly encounter ageism in the hiring process. The EEOC lacks the legal authority to do much about age discrimination. What needs to happen to crack down on companies, tech and otherwise, who won't hire older workers for reasons like they won't be a good cultural fit, or who overtly advertise that they want young workers or recent college grads or digital natives? Well, the, let me say one thing, is that discrimination is real, that it's an, a very, very important phenomena to be deal with, to deal with, and it's very, very hard to tackle because often it's hard to identify as discrimination. Um, so people are up against a very difficult um, and challenging situation and the stereotypes that flow from older workers are often really false and need to be undone by a series of mechanisms that I think we can collectively play a role in. Um, the other thing is to point out for companies where they do hire very diverse workforces that usually diversity is good for the bottom line. That in fact this isn't um, a favor for people that um, having a diverse workforce, especially in terms of age and gender, um, racial ethnic differences, turns out usually to make better products, um, be efficient for teams. There have been um, companies, including um, auto manufacturers from, you know, kind of blue collar teams to very white collar teams that show that diverse workforces can be very productive. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but acknowledging it is step number one. Thank you. I, I agree with Lisa, and I don't think we can really capture the abilities of our older adults in the workforce if we don't deal with discrimination. Other countries that are seeing their economy slow down or, or their um, the size of their labor force like Germany are actively having the employers engage with a variety of ways to accommodate their workers. So BMW, for example, put in ergonomic um, um, all kinds of, of things to make their, their, their programs more ergonomic. So the floors were softer, um, people had to lift less. 
Um, they did this to encourage their older workers to stay on, but found that it helped productivity of everyone. Um, they're finding mentorship programs from their older workers down to um, younger workers to transfer knowledge. All of these things um, are good for a company's bottom line, but we do have so many perceptions at the hiring manager, um, at the employer, I think in this country, that really need to change. Uh, and if we don't, um, I think companies will fall behind. Great, thank you. Um, we've also had a number of questions about disparities coming in, so I, I just want to share one of those. This is from Bob Harutnian. The unemployment rate of low income, i.e. less than 20,000 per year workers, ages 55 plus, has consistently been three times greater than the rate for all workers ages 55 plus. For example, in 2014, the age 55 plus low income unemployment rate was 13.3% compared to 4.4% for age 55 plus workers as a whole. What can be done to reduce this great disparity? That's a tough, uh, a tough one to tackle, but uh, does anybody have ideas there? Uh, there are a lot of, uh, I, I mean, this is a huge issue, um, and there are a lot of different possible ways of approaching it. Um, <clears throat> figuring out ways to reach and engage um, individuals who have been, uh, who have found either work or volunteer opportunities to be inaccessible is um, really important and we need a lot of, uh, a lot more policies uh, to ensure that the, these types of opportunities are accessible. Um, volunteering, for example, is oftentimes a pathway to um, employment for many people. And so thinking about how we might provide stipends for um, individuals so that volunteer opportunities be can be more accessible. Um, we can, uh, uh, that can help to offset the costs to individuals in participating in volunteer opportunities. The pr volunteer opportunities can oftentimes provide training, um, make, uh, allow individuals to make social connections that are, uh, allow them to get uh, work, which is helpful. Um, also, uh, supporting federal programs that are targeting low-income employees, um, low-income workers, like the uh, Senior Community Service Employment Program, which serves, uh, which is a, a, an amazing program that subsidizes um, uh, employment for um, older uh, workers. Um, oh, it's really only been able to serve a very small portion of the older adult population, though, so increased federal dollars toward programs like that, I think, can help. Could I just add one thing, is that disparities are an issue that occurs over the life course, that you don't erase them late in life. You have to think about them from the very earliest days. So if ever there were an issue that involved education, continuing education, job training, um, maximizing health um, early in life to set people up to go through the rest of life, the ultimate solution to reductions in inequality and disparities require us to think completely broadly across the life course, not, not at the right. end of our work history. That if you're in the lower income bracket in your 50s, you probably were in your 40s and your 30s and mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, let's reach people sooner. Right. Right. Um, 
Do we have time for a couple more questions and then we're going to do our round robin? Yes, and I know some of our audience has questions, but w perhaps we can address them to the panelists after the event. We just do have a lot of online questions um, about Social Security, so I do want to get one of those in there as well. Uh, this is from Rosemary Keene. Given that jobs are being eliminated by automation and outsourcing, what are your thoughts on how to strengthen Social Security? And how might we return to more reliable pension systems that are not dependent on the whims of the stock market? Thanks for your responses. It's kind of a twofold question there. <laughs> uh, but um, starting when we start with Social Security, how secure is it when people get these things in the mail that I like to open and say, hey, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, is that money going to be there for people? What, what, what are we looking at? And I don't know who most wants to take that one on. Deborah, man. I... Deborah? Sure. I mean, we know that right now that the amount of money coming into Social Security is not going to be enough in order to pay full benefits after 2033. Um, and at that point, everybody's benefits will be cut by about a quarter. Now that's not um, that people will receive nothing, um, but I don't think anybody wants to see their paycheck cut by a quarter. And so it's so important that we address the long-term shortfall, thinking about ways to make it sufficient for the last, the next 75 years so that people have the income that they can depend on and can, can think about supplementing that with work or with savings or with other pensions. And I think the, the second half of that question was interesting too. It gets at this notion that, look, our current 401k, 403b retirement plan system was never set up as the retirement solution for America. It just sort of ended up being that. Um, what are some things we could do to improve? And we talked a little bit about this earlier, but where, I mean, I think one thing uh, reporting that I've done. If you look at smaller companies, it's just very hard for them to navigate. How do I set up a good 401k plan for my workers? Um, even if they have a plan, uh, they don't have a super sophisticated person in HR who understands all of this stuff. Uh, what can we do to help improve the current system? Well, the president's budget that came out yesterday allowed employers to pool. I, I think states um, serving that purpose is also a step in the right direction. Um, but it certainly makes sense, like Germany, like the UK that you talked about, like so many other countries, to do this at the federal level so that people who live in one state and move to another you know, don't have to have disruptive systems. We should have a national program of saving to make it easy for people that's low cost, easy to understand, and that can last their whole lifetime. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to get one last chance to actually, when I do interviews, I always ask this question at the end of, of an interview. So um, what's sort of the most important part of this entire thing for each of you? And if there's one sort of policy takeaway uh, to frame the question that way, what, what would you like to leave people with? We can start. So for me, the bottom line is work needs to be redesigned, organizationally redesigned, and that will take both corporate responsibility um, for corporations thinking about what's best for them and their employees, but we'll also take um, public policy as well to pull two things together to face the coming transition. Okay. Um, uh, from my perspective, I think that uh, there's three primary 
um, challenges that uh, we need to think about when we're thinking about policies and programs to support increasing um, productive aging, and that's inclusion. So uh, what types of programs, innovative programs, policies can we think of to um, make sure that uh, older adults who are of lower socioeconomic status, caregivers who have disabilities are included in um, uh, productive activities. Uh, the intersection of competing productive activities, so thinking about how to mitigate the um, tension between caregiving and working and volunteering. And thirdly, um, the cumulative disadvantage that Lisa uh, referred to. Um, so thinking about over the course of one's lifetime, what can we do to ensure that productive activity is supported so that when people do get to older ages, um, there are more opportunities available. Do you want to do me or Jeff? Sure, cool, yeah, go ahead. Um, so I think it is critically important to remind people that if they want to be productive and engaged as they get older, that having a healthy lifestyle uh, when they're younger will be you know, very important to maintaining their memory, maintaining their health, maintaining their well-being. Um, and that if we do want to be active when we get older, we have to start thinking about it when we're somewhat younger. Um, and although as a society we haven't done a great job yet, and learning how to promote health um, and diet and physical activity, um, that it is something we can achieve and it, it should be a bigger part of all of our everyday lives. And Deborah is the head policy person at the AARP. What are uh, a couple of key policy takeaways from you? Um, I have a whole bunch, but I will stick it to this. You talked about the fourth quarter being the best quarter. And, and I, I think we have to really reorientate the lifespans that we have. Right now we spend the first quarter or a third educating. We spend the middle half working and we spend the last quarter um, in what's called in economics leisure or retirement or um, whatever you wanna frame it. But I, I think more people would like to break that down. So maybe we need education going a little bit later in life sometimes. We need some of that free time, not just at the end of life, but at the time when we have young kids or have caregiving responsibilities. Um, we have the gift of time. That's the beauty of our societies living longer. But what we need to think about is the systems that are flexible enough about how we use them. And I think there's a variety of ways to do that. But I think envisioning not just this same scenario that we've had for so long, but one that allows us to, to vary as we age, whether we're working, whether educating, whether we're um, taking some time off, um, can make it a really, really productive lifespan. I think that's a super interesting answer, and we'll have to do an NPR story on that, I think, at some point. <laughs> so. uh, listen, thanks to all the panelists for coming. Uh, I'd like to uh, make sure that people tune into the next forum, which is going to be on chemical exposures and the brain, the Flint water crisis, and more. Uh, that'll be Friday, February 19th at a uh, special time, noon to 1 p.m. And that is what we have for the forum. So thank you for coming today. Thanks again to all of our panelists and the people who are here. Sorry we didn't get in your questions, but stick around and we'll stay and answer them for you now. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.
www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.